Ladies and gentlemen, will you please help me welcome Dr. J.P. Palufry. You guys are so nice. The topic is emotional intelligence. How many here have heard of emotional intelligence? How many here have emotional intelligence? That's why you're here. There's really three things that I want to get across to you in our time tonight. Number one, emotions count. Emotions drive behavior, performance, and leadership in that order. And I hope I can persuade you of that by the time we finish. Number two. If we mismanage emotions, if we ignore emotions, especially within our key relationships, there will be a cost. We will either lose people physically, and is retention of the people who you serve, are they important to you? Absolutely. Do people leave this organization, or do they leave relationships? We know the answer to that. So if we ignore emotions, there will be a cost. People will either leave or... They will show up, but they will not be present, which might be worse. And finally, number three. This is why I get so excited about this topic. Not only is emotional intelligence the driver of behavior, performance, and leadership, but we have very good data to support the fact that it is learnable, can be improved upon, and that's what I really want to speak to today. I, I just want to mention one thing. We have a challenge, right? I'm up here. We have some time together, but we have a challenge. Everyone in this room is trying to get better, right? We're trying to get to the next level, trying to move our careers and this organization to the next level. What fascinates me about the work that I do is what is the edge? You know, where is the edge to be found? Whether you're an Olympic athlete, a CEO, a salesperson, an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur. That's why I just love working with you tonight. But I get so much, you know, interest and excitement out of where's the edge? Where's the edge? And that area is within the realm of our emotions. As much as I want this to be inspiring, I want this to be substantive. I don't want to sit up here and give you some trite motivational speak. It doesn't work for me. I want to give you something to put some science behind what differentiates high performers. Emotional intelligence. What is emotional intelligence? Emotional intelligence, first and foremost, has everything to do with managing and motivating oneself. So emotional intelligence, first and foremost, is knowing something about oneself and one's emotions. The second part of emotional intelligence, the second part of emotional intelligence is all about being strong enough in the center so you can now go out and really understand what's going on in the mind and the heart of that person out there. First self-transform, then self-transcend. Withdraw, then return. And there's a full competency model, which is to say there's a, there's a lot more to emotional intelligence, and it kind of breaks into four factors. Can you tell I have a three- and a five-year-old now? <laughs> What I would like to say, and actually the reason that we built this model this way is self-awareness is both the base, but it touches every other quality of emotional intelligence. Take your workbook on page five, and I want you to do the following. I want you to uh, circle optimism. We're going to talk about that tonight in, in some depth. 
Optimism is not having, you know, being positive all the time. Not at all. It's about understanding something about what we say to ourselves when we hit a setback. Um, number two, uh, impulse control under emotional management. Circle that as well. Coaching others under emotional connection. Circle that. Those are the things that I'm going to focus on, but I want to speak to a few other pieces here. For instance, personal drive under personal leadership. You know, Casey talked about the importance of having goals. I can't tell you how important having a written down set of goals is. You cannot believe the power of putting a stake in the ground and saying, that's where I'm going. And you need to find ways to reward yourself. We're going to talk about the basic design of the brain, and you will start to see how we need to tune into that and then really start to live in alignment with that. And that's what creates great performance. Personal drive comes from being clear, being mindful about what our deep core goals, core values and goals are all about. That's, again, why you, you, you withdraw. Let me tell you a little research behind that. Some of you might have heard this story. It's, I mean, it's a study. Yale University, 30 years ago, the entire class upon graduation was asked, how many of you have a written down set of goals? What percent do you think answered, yes, I do, and here they are? What do you think? Oh, what a good group. 3%. 30 years later, tell me about that 3%. 30 years later, when they followed this group of 3%, they found that they had more net worth than the other 97% combined. Why? I don't know. I really don't know, and they don't even know. But the idea is that if they are mindful of what matters most, I mean, because that, that, that set of goals obviously changed, but it's just working hunches, right? We have working hunches. What do we want to do for this next week, for this next month, for this next year? You have to do two things in that scenario. You have to be mindful of what matters most, and then you have to risk. You have to be able to risk, because I'll tell you, if you don't risk, you won't get out to where the fruit lies. We know that. And i got to say, Canadians, geez, let's start risking a little bit more. We're just so, you know, oh, everything's okay, you know. No, forget that. I mean, I really, i got to tell you, I get so upset when I see the, I mean, and it's improving, but the lack of entrepreneurialism in this country. You know, we think everyone else will take care of us. Forget it. You know, we need to take care of everyone, you know, and others. That's part of being Canadian. I'm proud of that. But we need to step up, and we need to take some personal responsibility. That's what personal drive's all about. Living in alignment. I just want to say a few things about that that kind of echoes these statements. Living in alignment is nothing more than finding your unique ability. Again. I don't know if Casey has told you this story because I know he's really, you know, he's tuned into the, the importance of unique ability. But here's what we know. When you're doing really what you love to do, you gain energy from it. When you do things that you don't love to do, it, it just saps you of energy, doesn't it? I'm not saying we have to do it 100% of the time, but the bottom line is that when you are actually doing what you love, you get into a flow state, the chemicals in your brain actually change. And that's when you're most creative, most powerful, and that's when people sit there and go, wow, this person, I need to listen to this person. There's a certainty, there's a flow, there's some coherence that is coming from this person. 
That's what living in alignment is all about. About 20 years ago, 1,500 MBA students were asked, what are you going to do upon graduation? I love these longitudinal studies. Here's what they found. 1,250 of the 1,500 said, I'm going to go out and get a good job, pay down my loans, and find something that I like to do after that. 250 of the 1,500 said, I'm going to go out and find something that I love to do. 20 years later, but a year and a half ago, they looked at this group. Here's what they found. There were 101 millionaires in this group of 1,500. One of the millionaires came from the 1,250 who said, I'm going to go out and find a good job, pay down my debts. 100 millionaires came from the 250 who said, I'm going to go out and find something that I love to do. Wow. You know, it's not do what you love, you know, love what you do. You know, there's some science behind it. And that's why being in this room and you have an opportunity to say, what do I love to do? How do I best like to work with people? I'm in control. And if there's some things that, you know, you don't really like doing that you're not very good at, learn to delegate. It's not easy. And as your business grows, you're going to have to learn to do that. Very important. One other piece under self-regard, self-assessment, and then I'm going to go to some of the other, um, I just wanted to say a few words about these other competencies. Self-regard. What self-regard is, self-regard is being strong in the center to the degree that if somebody says something to you, you know, gives you some feedback, you don't just become defensive and fall apart. How nice is it to be with people who you feel like you can't air your grievances skillfully, or you just feel like you can't even say anything because they're going to fall apart? It's hard, isn't it? You know what we know? John Gottman, again, 24 years of research. John Gottman has found that we can predict now what will differentiate couples that stay together, live healthy lives, and couples who fall apart. You know how we do that? It's based on one emotionally intelligent quality. We could test everyone here today. In five years, we could tell you with 94% accuracy who of you would stay together based on this. How skillfully you air your grievances, right? In any relationship that you're in, you will have conflict. You will have tension. But how do you air your grievance? And can you be strong enough in the center, have enough self-regard that you can take a little bit of constructive criticism and not just get defensive? Again, you're in the relationship business. More than anything else, you're in the relationship business. Both at work, but also at home. I don't want that to happen to you. Page six. Here's a really interesting diagram. You know, we have been absolutely, excuse the word, but anal about IQ for the last hundred years. Really, we think it predicts everything. How good a predictor is IQ for future performance, do you think? Good, bad? It's so poor. It's very low. At the most, IQ will predict eight or nine percent of how well someone will do 30 years later. How do we know that? Harvard Medical Business and Law Schools tested incoming graduates or candidates. They found that if you follow them 30 years later, those people who did the best, it, it was not predicted by IQ. In fact, what's really interesting is that people at the highest IQ had a negative correlation to how well they did in terms of family, business, how much money, how much respect, a whole raft of factors. It's not IQ. It's not, and you need to know that. 
It's about some of these other factors, this EQ, how we manage our emotions, how persistent we are, how tenacious we are. Now, how about technical skills? Is that a very good predictor of future performance? No, it's not. Eight or nine percent again. You can write that in the circle. Eight or nine for IQ, eight or nine for technical skills. It's not what drives performance. It'll get you in the door. You wouldn't be in this room if you didn't have enough. But it's not what differentiates you. By and large, it's emotional intelligence. It's all of the things we talked about, which are not the soft skills anymore. They are the skills that actually lead to performance. And by the way, you can't even increase your IQ at this age. <laughs> you know, none of us can. At about age 16, it becomes fairly concrete. But you can with emotional intelligence. Larry Bosky said, in the past, we used to reward the Lone Rangers in the corner office because their achievements were brilliant, even though their behavior was destructive. That day is gone. We need people who are better at persuading others than barking orders, who know how to coach and build consensus. Today, managers add value by brokering people. Like I said, you're in the relationship business, and you have to take that very seriously. So let me ask you a question. Why do you think smart people fail? Why do you think, you know, anybody fails? Let me ask you that question. Why do you think? You know, let me hear from you. This is the interactive part of the program. Go ahead. Lack of motivation? Yep. Too good to do the small things. Big one. Go ahead. Lack of focus. Go ahead. Lack of a mentor. Wow. Really like what Interbiz is doing for mentorship. Big one. Big one. Go ahead. Lazy. Lazy. Can't handle not being right. Rigid in their beliefs. Huge one. One more. I had one other hand over here. Go ahead. Uh, you guys. Here's what we know from research. Center for Creative Leadership looked at high performers and they found the following. Number one is the inability to manage relationships. Really that John Gottman research around why some people stay together and have healthy relationships. When you are hit with a put down, a let down, or a shutdown by someone important to you, someone didn't send the check, the question is, can you have a courageous conversation with that person? Or instead you kind of like, you know, swallow it, put it away somewhere, and just let it kind of build and grow and create power inside of you and anger. You know, is that skillful? It's not, right? Is this a matter of IQ? No, it's a matter of can you kind of risk? Can you be vulnerable? Because as soon as you go out and you kind of, you know, have a courageous conversation, you're being vulnerable. That's not easy. Inability to manage relationships is everything. There's a second one, which was just mentioned, inability to manage change. That's number two. If you can kind of keep yourself together as the change is coming at you, adapt to change, it means you can use your IQ and your technical skills. Now, I gave you these two top reasons why smart people fail, while anyone fails, because I don't want it to undermine your career. You've got to be paying attention to these two pieces, your relationships and change. You know, this organization has gone through a little bit of change in the last six or eight months. Are you risking right now? Absolutely. That's where the fruit lies. It's when you risk. You know, leap and the net appears. 
really. And remind yourself of that because it gets hard sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes you feel, what, what am I doing either in this group, maybe versus another group? You know, or things aren't happening very well with our relationships. We have to have some courageous conversations. These are the two key pieces you need to think about. Now there's another reason. And that's because of the basic design of the brain. I really want to talk to you about that now. So go to the next page. So let's talk a little bit about the brain. Fascinating stuff. The brain de developed or was designed and, and was built from the bottom up. First there was the spinal cord and brain stem. Not so important for human behavior, somewhat important if you want to breathe or regulate heart rate. But the big breakthrough came when this amygdala was formed. Everyone together, amygdala. amygdala. Anybody speak Greek here? Actually, of course we've got some Greek speak. Hey, all right, what does amygdala mean? What is amygdala, what's the literal translation for amygdala? Ah, yes, they're my plant here tonight. Almond, that's exactly right. In Greek, amygdala stands for almond. I've been lucky enough to dissect the brain in my studies. It looks like an almond. Don't worry, I didn't eat it. But the thing is, is that that little amygdala is really important. About five years ago, Joseph Ledoux at New York University found this very important piece of the puzzle in terms of human behavior. What he found was is that the amygdala is kind of like well, let me explain it to you. First of all, it allowed us to learn for the first time. Why? Because the amygdala is the source of emotional memory. So amygdala is emotion. All learning is emotion. You will only learn that which you feel is important. There are a number of implications for that. If you want people to learn who you serve, you got to make it emotional. You gotta get them to buy in. Literally, motivation and emotion, they're really interchangeable, especially when you look at some of the old languages. That's, both words are, are closely tied together. But the amygdala also answers that one critical question of human survival. Do you know what that is? Do I eat it, or does it eat me? Literally. Fight or flight, exactly. In any moment, this is the question that we're constantly asking. Are we under threat? Relationships and change, those are the two specific stimuli that really get at our amygdala. The third diagram down, much later, you look up, you see neocortex. Neo means new, cortex is our brain. The important piece of, that you need to know about, about this part of the brain is that it's our IQ brain. It's where our IQ resides. Now there's one other area behind the forehead, not diagrammed so well on this, but it's called the prefrontal cortex. Why I'm telling you that is because it is the site of working memory. Site of working memory is kind of our short-term memory. If you're calm and relaxed right now, you can sit here and hold on to six or seven ideas. You know, you've got that much capacity. So it's almost like a little space. So you're sitting here calm, relaxed, you can hold on five, six, seven ideas, kind of move them around, make sense of your world. Let me ask you, in the basic design of the human brain, what came first, based on what we just talked about? After the brain stem and spinal cord, the amygdala. 
Here is a huge takeaway. If you leave with nothing else today, I want you to remember this. In the basic design of the human brain, emotion comes before thought. In the basic design of the human brain, emotion comes before thought. In other words, the implication is that we feel before we think. You know, you don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. Your kids don't have a choice. The people you serve do not have a choice. We feel before we think. If you leave with nothing else today, remember this. When this breakthrough of understanding came forth by Joseph Ledoux, it really created a huge understanding about what drives human behavior. And you need to be students of human behavior if you are going to excel in this business. Because it's all about human behavior, it's all about relationships. So here's what's really interesting. You get put down, let down, shut down by someone important to you. There's great change, you're on the hot seat, as Kevin was. And all of a sudden your amygdala, because it gets the information first, emotion comes before thought, it feels threatened. And here's what happens. We have what's known as amygdala hijack. I mean, it's such a horrible word now. On September 11th, I was actually doing a program when everything took place. And I'll tell you, what a horrible term. But what is a hijack? Really think about it right now. A hijack is when you're being taken to a place you don't want to go against your will. Right? That's what a hijack is. And that's what happens when our amygdala feels threatened. It hijacks the brain. It literally takes over the higher centers. This is why smart people can do very dumb things. I know no one's, you know, that wouldn't happen to anyone here, but let me give you an example of an amygdala hijack. First of all, the, the hallmarks are there's, we have a strong emotional response. It happens very suddenly. And when the dust settles, you think, how could I have done that? But the implications are actually quite awesome. During an amygdala hijack, we go from six or seven bytes of information in our working memory to about one or two bytes of information. In other words, we can't think straight. Everyone here has been in that situation, right? You're in an argument, let's say, with your spouse or partner. Two hours later, you're driving somewhere, and you think, geez, why didn't I say this, and why didn't I say that? The reason is because you were under an amygdala hijack, you couldn't think straight. You know, there's a, um, a professor at Kellogg, the Graduate School of uh, Business, who is so in love with this concept because for her, it kind of explains what differentiates high-performing negotiators, because that's her field, she's world-renowned, what differentiates high-performing negotiators from average. Why? Because if somebody says something to you in the course of a negotiation, You've got to be able to calm that amygdala so you can retain your working memory. But it's no different for anyone here, right? We all have to do that. In every relationship we're in, can we calm ourselves? Can we calm ourselves? That's the question. You need to work on that. So the effects of an amygdala hijack are we make more errors. We literally have this decreasing working memory in that moment and we can't think straight. And it's the cause of a lot of very bad business decisions. Let me give you one. Remember uh, Mike Tyson? 
Mike Tyson did what to Vander Holyfield? A bit is here. You see, Mike Tyson's amygdala got the wrong answer to the question, do I eat it or does it eat me? <laughs> and that cost him. That was a very bad business decision. He lost $3 million out for a year of fighting. He's only now coming back. But here's the big thing. Mike Tyson does not have a hyperactive amygdala. He doesn't. He just has not been taught tools to calm the amygdala. That's the basis of our work. That's the basis of our work. Each of us, with some commitment, some diligence, can learn some really basic but powerful skills to calm the amygdala. Because it's not a matter for anyone here but an overactive amygdala. It's that we haven't been taught some calming measures on the amygdala. We'll talk about some of those a little bit later. Let me give you an interesting stat. How many thoughts do you think we have a day? 60,000 thoughts a day. This is what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi at University of Chicago says. Probably the world authority in this area. 60,000 thoughts a day. A female colleague of mine tells me actually men only have one thought a day. <laughs> 60,000 times, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but here's the deal. Actually, write this down because this is an interesting stat. There's really four categories that we have. 40% of those thoughts are thoughts about the future. 40% of those 60,000 thoughts a day are thoughts about the future. This is kind of like you get a call from your boss or someone at 10 a.m. They say, I need to see you at 3 p.m. What do you do for the next five hours? Right, you awfulize. <laughs> Maybe not fine in the great psychiatric books of uh, you know today, but you awfulize. Literally, you sit there and you think, what could be the worst thing? You know, oh my gosh, that project didn't go well, or they didn't get my check, or whatever. But here's the most amazing part. 99% of those thoughts never take place. I mean, that's, that's part of our legacy. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have, our ancestors would not have passed on our designer genes in our brain if we did not amplify the negative to protect ourselves. You know, 10,000 years ago, that served us. That saved us. Today, you gotta check it. Check your thoughts for accuracy. There's another big one. You know, I saw a license plate. It's been eight months ago in like Washington. It said, a bumper sticker, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> and I thought, that's it. That's it. Don't believe everything you think. 40% of our thoughts are thoughts about the future, 99% of which never take place. Second category, our thoughts about the past. 30% of our thoughts are thoughts about the past. What can you do about your past? You can't do anything. You can learn from it, but you can't do anything about it. You have a bad meeting, a bad conference, a bad presentation. Your ability to let go of that moment and come back fully in the moment has everything to do with how successful you will be. You see, we're just walking habits, aren't we? We're walking habits. We live so many years ahead of ourselves. Right? We're worried about this, we're thinking about that, we're all over here, as opposed to just being here. Just living in the moment, being in the moment. The third category is actually thoughts that we have that are filled with doubt. And that's 12% of our thoughts. 
What does doubt do to our best ability? What does it do? Paralyzes us, doesn't it? Like in that moment, you know, we're, we're, we have thoughts filled with doubt and we can't do what we know we need to do. Michael Jordan, I mean, had this great saying. He said, well, I mean, Wayne Gretzky said, you know, of course, you don't make 100% of the shots you don't take, but Michael Jordan will tell you categorically that he's missed way more buzzer beating shots than he's ever made. But did it stop him, right? That's the important question. Did it stop him? No. He was able to let go of doubt and just be in the moment. It's really about being in the moment. That's, you know, a central theme there. So that's 12% of our thoughts. 10% of our thoughts, this is the final category, are worries about our health. <coughs> now, let me ask you, what does worries about our health do to our health? Yeah, that's right. It doesn't improve it. And you know, you guys know that your success is absolutely pinned upon your ability to be, you know, strong in the five factors that Casey has set out. Family, children, the business, health, you know, being in tune. Worries about our health does nothing but affect our health. So what is that? 40, 30, 12, and 10. What percent is that? What does that equal to? 92% of our thoughts. 92% of our thoughts, this is the takeaway. 92% of our thoughts are not true pictures of reality. This is the second big takeaway. First, emotion comes before thought. The second is don't believe everything you think, as I said. And the Matrix was so amazing because, you know, Keanu Reeves, that great Canadian actor, had a chance to... <laughs> You see, most of the times, because I don't speak to Canadian audiences, they go, huh? But I always kind of push in that Canadian. He had a choice between a blue or a red pill, didn't he? And the choice was, do you want to wake up, or do you want to just stay asleep, like the masses? Wow. You know what interbiz is? Interbiz is all about waking up. Honestly, I come here, yeah, really. You know, I work with these great corporations. I was on a cruise in the Bahamas a month or two ago with 1,200 of their high performers. Well, you know what? i got to tell you something. They didn't have the energy that this room has. I'm serious. There's a lot of people asleep at the wheel, the wheel of their life. My parents woke up because of the energy in this room. I am grateful. Pat yourself on the back for being here because you have risked to be here. Really. Interbiz is about waking up. It really is. I mean, Casey knows this, but he is changing lives. I mean, each of you have the power to change lives. You know, this may sound really funny. I don't care how well or how poor your business does. I really don't. But I'd like to see you wake up. And the great thing is what we know from the research is that when you wake up, your business will flourish. But it has to go in that order. So is self-control, is impulse control important? Because that's really what we're talking about with the amygdala, aren't we? We're talking about impulse control. We're talking about self-control. Here's what we know. This is kind of from business, but it, it doesn't matter. It has an effect on us here today. Think about this. 181 top CEOs or presidents, multinational companies. Think of that group now. Now compare that group to the group that was passed over, the senior, senior management that was passed over for that job. So compare these two groups of people. You got that? Here's what we find. 
the group that was promoted demonstrated self-control seven times more frequently than those passed over, demonstrated empathy three times more frequently. In terms of their IQ competencies, analytical thinking, conceptual thinking, yes, the CEO presidents demonstrated more IQ, 1.2, 1.0 times, but if you know your statistics, you know that that's statistically insignificant. That's a blip. It was not a difference. Remember I was talking about, where's the edge? The edge is not in IQ. It's not. So I want to talk about the famous marshmallow test. Imagine if you took four-year-olds. Imagine that. And you put them in a room. The researcher goes in. There's a hidden camera. This is Stanford University 30 years ago. I'm going to give you a marshmallow. Now, if you can wait, I'm going to leave the room. And if you can wait and not eat that marshmallow, when I come back, I'll give you two marshmallows. How's that sound? Make sense? Okay. All right, so the researcher left the room. <laughs> so 30 years ago, Stanford Daycare, we have a number of four-year-olds, and the four-year-olds in this marshmallow test fell into three groups. The first group was this group, immediately grabbed it, okay? Now the second group did something a little bit different. The second group, over the course of the, about the seven or eight minutes that they did the test, um, kind of gave in to their urge and they, you know, ate it. And in the end, they ate the whole thing. And this group refrained from eating the marshmallow. <laughs> and their group was rewarded with a marshmallow. Now, it's a cute little story. I mean, it's great video footage. But, you know, there's something we're testing for here. What is that? What are we testing for? Impulse control, right? Throw out the little girl who ended up like this or her group. Right, the, the group that kind of had a little, had a little, and finished it. And think of comparing the group that couldn't wait with the group that could wait. The outlying groups. At age four, we're talking about impulse control. But here's the amazing part. 14 years later, when you look at the groups, you find that the group that waited scored 210 points higher on their SATs. SATs, Scholastic Aptitude Test. It's really a measure that you do, you know, you're leaving high school, you're going to university, and colleges are absolutely smitten over it. We found that the group that waited scored 210 points higher in their SATs. That is so significant. But what was the difference? Now, this is what's really interesting to me. Why the difference in 210 points? Well, they think that it had something to do with impulse control, of course. Why did the grade point average go up at, at uh, inner city Boston, Newark, New Jersey, South Central LA. Why? Because kids were able to calm their amygdala. They were given some tools, very basic, very powerful, to calm their amygdala. And then they could think straight, and then they could develop. What's really interesting in my mind is that if you look at this group 10 years later, at age 28, you find that the group that waited could do three things especially well. Number one, they could concentrate better. But number two and number three are important. Let me ask you, if you're taking notes and you're tuned in, what are the two key derailers? Or why do smart people fail? What do you have to be especially careful about to grow your career? Inability to manage change and inability to manage 
relationships. Well, look at what this group could do. They could form closer relationships and they had increased impulse control in the face of frustration. This is the science behind our behavior. There is just great value in doing what you say, showing up on time. Managing that amygdala, managing that emotional side of our lives. Emotion comes before thought and we can't do anything about it. In the time that we have left, I want to talk about an amygdala hijacking. What can we do about that? How can we self-soothe? I want to really dissect an amygdala hijack from the best that we know about the brain's neurology, emotion thoughts, and what we can do to actually short-circuit an amygdala hijack. When you look at this diagram, here's what happens. We have a stimulus and we have a response in life, right? Stimulus to response. It's a great teaching tool. Generally speaking, when we have necessarily a P, an L, or an S, which is a put down, a let down, or a shut down, when you look really closely and what causes an amygdala hijack, it falls into one of these three categories. We feel put down by someone we respect. We feel let down. Somebody said they were going to do something and they didn't do it. Or we feel shut down. You know, what's really interesting is 10,000 years ago, we were worried about our safety, rightly so, when we faced a wild animal. Today, it's actually not safety, it's respect. The biggest cause of an amygdala hijack today is when we feel disrespected because that's the currency today. It's not life or death now, it's respect or no respect. You know, that is literally why in your business you have got to be strong in the center. People hear interbiz and they jump to conclusion. Talk about the 5% rule, right? You have got to be strong why your emotional intelligence is everything. Put down, let down, shut down. What happens is that we get the hijack, not at the very top of the diagram, not at the most intense point, but actually just as it's getting there. Why? Because what's really interesting is that that hijack, right, that's the emotion, we're starting to feel it, it causes our thinking mind. So you can draw a little kind of circle out of the hijack well, right beside it, it says thinking mind. That's what we just talked about. So that's a nice segue. Thank you for that question. So emotion comes before thought. We, we feel disrespected in some way, put down, let down, shut down. We start to think, which is kind of the 5% rule, and we hijack anger, hostility. But what's really interesting is what do you think drives anger or hostility? Is that a primary emotion? Now, what do you think? Think about situations when you've been hijacked. Fear, possibly. Hurt, it's hurt. When you look at anger, it's actually a secondary emotion. You know, if we did a little exercise of talking about an amygdala hijack that each of us had, when you drill down, you realize that it wasn't anger at all. It was actually hurt. The problem is that we feel hurt 
we start to like get excited, we start to think, and now here's a really interesting part. Emotion, feel disrespected, we start to think, oh, you know, we get into this, this, this matrix mind, right, this story, and what's so amazing is that the amygdala now does not know the difference between what's real or what's perceived. So the amygdala gets this, you know, remember 92% of our thoughts are not true pictures, but it's starting to be stimulated from the emotion, stimulated thinking. Now we're, you know, we, that's why we think thought is so important. It is important. Driven by emotion first, though. The thought is going like this, and the amygdala gets re-stimulated. It's called an amygdala cycle. It's really, it's, I mean, it's really powerful. And that's why you can sit here and I can say to you, think about a time when you were disrespected, put down, let down, shut down. I gave you five or ten minutes to think about it. And you know what? You would come back and you would be like this. Even though that event is not happening in this moment, because the amygdala not, does not know the difference between real or perceived. And we, we all know this, right? You're driving somewhere and you kind of get yourself all worked up. That's the term we used, all worked up. What's really interesting is necessarily we have this hijack when we are in a halted state. Halted means hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You know, you guys have got to pay particular attention because it's at night when you're doing your work, as you're getting your business off the ground. Necessarily you're working with your partner or spouse. And that's the time when you are most tired, when you are most, you know, maybe hungry, maybe lonely because you're out on your own risking being an entrepreneur. I know, I've been there. I am there at times. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's when we're most susceptible to an amygdala hijack. This is why self-awareness is so important. Would you ever give performance feedback, if that's what you do in your work, and, and you do, at 5 or 6 p.m.? when people are just about to go home, let's say at work in a typical situation. No, of course not, because they're most susceptible to amplifying the negative. Let's, let's take this into consideration. So we get this input, the stimuli, we're halted. It's, we feel like it's a put down, let down, shut down, but is it really? Is it really? You know, the truth of the matter in all of our professional work is that 99% of the time, it's not. We have to move from certainty, you know, this 5% that we know exactly that that person meant to get upset, etc., to curiosity. Let me tell you a story. It's Christmas in Burlington. Everyone is coming from all over North America, actually. My brother's in San Francisco and sister somewhere else, brother somewhere else. We all come to Burlington. My mom looks forward to this day 365 days a year, right? So we all come in. It's pretty, you know, emotionally loaded, right? Christmas time is a great opportunity to practice emotional intelligence, right? <laughs> and I don't know if I was very skilled this Christmas because my older brother was really um, not very nice, a bit sullen, a bit kind of uh, mean-spirited. He, he adores my wife and he was mean-spirited to her. So, you know, over the three or four days that we're all kind of together, you know, I'm starting to kind of get... Like, well, what's your problem? And, you know, and I'm thinking about all the past grievances that we have, the stuff that we put away, and I'm thinking, oh, he's mad at me for some reason. Well, well, he's an idiot. Well, I, uh, talk about, you know, that story in the back of the workbook. 
I'm creating this whole scenario. Each day passes, I'm getting more worked up, and Christmas is over. We're driving home as we debrief, you know, as you all do, you know, the meeting after the meeting kind of thing. <laughs> oh, gosh, we're human beings, right? And I remember saying to Elizabeth, I can't believe how my brother ruined Christmas. He is such a, right? Okay, a month later, actually it was uh, February 7th, so a month and a few days later, whatever. He calls, JP, um, my wife and I are breaking up. You know, his son was going to turn one year in seven days later on Valentine's Day. Now I ask you, in that moment, you know, over Christmas, was he upset at me? Did it have anything to do with me? No, of course not. But I couldn't get out of my own head. I couldn't, I move, I couldn't move from certainty to curiosity. You know, to kind of like have it not be all about me. Geez, you know, bro, what's, what's going on? You seem kind of upset. Did I do something? You know, seek information. Did I do that? No. To this day, I honestly think, I mean, I did not serve him. I ruined my own Christmas. Do you see that? We can miss moments. We can miss moments. We only have so very few moments on this earth. Let's not waste them. Great quote. Phil Jackson, you know who he is, former coach of the, uh, now the coach of LA Lakers, but the Chicago Bulls. He said, in basketball as in life, true joy comes from being fully present in each and every moment, not just when things are going your way. Of course, it's no accident that things are more likely to go your way when you stop, stop worrying about whether you're going to win or lose and focus instead your full attention on just what's happening right this moment. You know, I wasn't there for my brother. I couldn't get out of moving from certainty to curiosity. I don't want that to happen to you. If you feel like a brother, a sister, someone in your team is upset, go over there and ask them. You know, that's the whole point of being a leader, a spiritual leader. You can transform, let go, and now really tune in because it's not about you. Catherine Nanton told me this in November. People do not do things to us. They do things for their own reasons. We're just, we just get in the way. So true. I also heard on that same weekend we were together, in our 30s we worry about what people think about us. In our 40s we stop worrying about what people think of us. And in our 50s we realize that people weren't thinking about us in the first place. <laughs> or something like that. Now here's the problem, if we actually are able, if we are actually able to kind of get over the curve and not hijack, we have an opportunity to speak our truth. We have an opportunity to speak our hurt or our needs. But the next challenge that we have, so the first challenge is getting over the hump. When it's really tough, you know, to, to not give in to that wanting to, to lash out or to create these scenarios in our head. But the next Opportunities to speak our truth. And to be honest, I'm actually convinced because we, we all kind of think it's socially unacceptable to, to display anger, really. You know, first, certainly more than hurt. But both. We're not really allowed in our society. The permission isn't there. So here's where I think actually our greatest problem is, is when we don't speak our truth. When we actually swallow our truth. 
when we swallow our truth. And what causes that? What's the driver of swallowing our truth? Fear. Absolutely. You know, there's two emotions that if you're going to work on more than any other, it's hurt and it's fear. It's hurt and it's fear. You know what's amazing is that you know, talking about on the health side, you swallow your truth, right? So you have a hurt or a need that's not being met. You swallow it, you, you put it away. Do you know that when you do that on a regular basis, residue builds up in that relationship? And every time you see them, you just you feel it again. Why? Because the amygdala not, does not know the difference between real or what's perceived. But the other piece is this. You put it away, it still manifests. It builds up into hostility. Does anybody remember type A personality? You know the research around type A personality and what disease? Do you remember? Heart disease, absolutely. It used to be this. Heart disease was driven by a number of things, but a type A personality was really three things. Being competitive, being in a hurry, and being hostile, right? The good news is that that was somewhat of a faulty explanation. Being uh, in a hurry or being competitive will not kill you. <laughs> I'm happy about that. <laughs> but, but being hostile will. So you swallow your truth and you put it away somewhere and you start to build in resentment or hostility. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. Hostility is every bit as damaging to your heart as smoking one full pack of cigarettes a day. Isn't that incredible? I don't know if it's really, you know, anger gone amok versus swallowing our truth that is really the problem. Think about it. 10,000 years ago, I love this. Let's stick with this kind of metaphor, this story. 10,000 years ago, we're in Africa, right? We're growing into our humanness, right? We're, we're you know... And, and there we are on the plains, and it's a wild animal this time, and we run, right? You and me, we run. We scurry up a tree. That animal strikes us and cuts us. In the infinite wisdom of this body, what do we want our body to do to save us? Clot that blood, right? In that moment, we want our body to, ham you know, to, to coagulate that blood. Why? So it'll save us. Well, that served us 10,000 years ago. Today, when someone puts us down, lets us down, or shuts us down, or maybe another example, when you're in the checkout line, right, and you need, be, need to be somewhere at 3.30, and it's 3.45, and you're in the 12 item or less, and the person ahead of you has 18 items, you know because you're counting, right? <laughs> in that moment, where do you think the blood is clotting? In your coronary arteries. You know, at our organization, we do training, we do executive coaching. If we have an executive who is worried, who smokes, who has high, host, high hostility, and is worried about their heart, you know what we tell them? Keep smoking. I'm kind of joking. But the bottom line is it's much easier to actually deal with your hostility than it is to stop smoking. And here's the deal. It comes from speaking our truth. It comes from managing... Two places, getting over the curve and then speaking our truth. And let's just look into that a little bit more closely. This is what you need to do. This is like 
gold. This is honestly gold in my mind. If you hear nothing else in your life, I think this can serve. I'm a bit biased, but I really believe that. You feel put down, let down, shut down. You know, or you're in a situation and you're just, you know, you feel your body go like this. And you think it's just a character flaw, that it's just you. Let me tell you, it's not you. Everyone. We do training and we have people have, you know, interviewing, do all this stuff. And I will tell you, everyone has the same challenge of managing their emotions. You're not alone. It's not some character flaw. You can do something differently. If you're awake, if you take and swallow the pill and say, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to try and be diligent and build on these skills. So here's the deal. You start to feel it. And you feel it, really, in three places. This is really neat. Here, here, and here. I won't go into the physiology of why, but here you feel warm. Your shoulders come up and you feel tight here. Why? It's because our muscles actually know, our body knows what's going on in our emotions and our thoughts before we actually do. So it's almost like the body is the key. We need to be aware in our bodies. We need to live in our bodies a bit more, number one. So when we feel that, we need to stop. We need to stop. That's the first thing we need to do. We need to just stop and do nothing. Then what we need to do is oxygenate. We have to take a breath. Literally, if we can just take a breath, actually take three breaths, whatever it takes you to get to six seconds. Do you know that six seconds is all you really need to get over the hump? Isn't that amazing? There's an organization in the U.S. called the Six Seconds Institute. Based on this, totally. Get over the hump. Six seconds, that's all you need. Stop oxygenate. Just stop and breathe. Now, what we do know is that if you don't, if you're just living unconsciously, as we all do, me included, I'm no master, by the way. You could ask my wife. If she was here, she'd tell you. Right? I'm no master. I'm just doing the best I can. And just as an aside, why I'm here today is because my dad, 35 years, and John Deere, feeling powerless, shut down, not able to express his emotions, right, grew his hostility factor. About six weeks ago, my dad had a heart attack. Why? Because of what we're talking about today. I'm here because I'm trying to wake up, because I have the same kind of script to get really angry, to kind of get upset. You know, to my beautiful five and three-year-olds to get really like they're not listening. The three-year-old's running away again for the fifth time. And I'm just going nuts. And I just want to like manhandle, put her down, put this on, and let's, you know. I mean, who has been there, right? That's right. You know what I'm talking about. This is, this is my calling is to you know, work on myself. And in the, in the process, I've discovered that we all need these tools. Six seconds, if we can just get over the hump, then we have an opportunity. Now let me ask you a question. Do you see the hijacked place right there? Think about the brain. Think about what we've learned from the brain. What's in control in that moment? Yes, the amygdala and emotions. What working memory do we have in that moment to make a good decision on our plan of action? Exactly. We have one or two bytes of information. We, we actually can't think straight. Does it make sense for us to act in that moment? No. Just remember that. Just stop and oxygenate because you can't think straight. Leave the room. Do you know what Elizabeth and I do? This is what we do. When we're in an argument or there's some tension and we're a little like we're getting worked up, 
and we start to feel like one of us is going to lose it, like, you know, you only really feel yourself maybe, but this is what we do. This is our universal sign. When either one of us do this, we put both hands on our head, it means that we're getting upset and it's too much, and we stop. We actually don't say another word, even if we have a really good point. We stop. <laughs> and that's hard. <laughs> Believe me, that's hard. And we leave the room. Can I tell you how that has served my relationship with Elizabeth? Really. It was her idea, and I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, because of my hostility, remember? <laughs> but in that moment, if we can get over the hump, then we can get to this opportunity to speak our truth. And let me ask you this. How, much, how many bites of information do we have at that moment? Six or seven bites. It's brain science, but it's not brain science, you know, it's really simple. My dad told me to go walk around the block, right? Why? He didn't know it, because I would cool down. This is what the brain, you know, research is telling us. Use it, use it, use it, use it. Stop, breathe. Now here's the most amazing part. If you can get over the hump, what you need to do next is really important. Let me ask you this. Okay, let me go back. We know that emotion comes before thought, right? We know that you get put down, let down, shut down, you're starting to lose it. We know that that stimulates the thinking mind, so now you're in this amygdala cycle. Emotion is causing stimulate thinking mind, which the amygdala, again, doesn't know the difference between real perceived, so it gets more excited, puts up more juice, more chemicals, and you're in this horrible situation. We all know it. What do you think would be a strategy to get out of that? Do you think it is to think more, or do you think it is to do something else? And what is that something else? I'm really leaving this open, so because I want you to think. Just think, you know, what was the first takeaway that I talked about in this program? Emotion comes before thought. The way you stop this cycle, if you can get over the hump, is use emotion. Use emotion, but use positive emotion. Strengthen heart emotion. Do you know there's a whole science around this right now, looking at when we actually use the heart emotions of gratitude and appreciation, it short circuits this horrible amygdala cycle. So literally, we think of, for that person that we're having a real challenge with, some gratitude or appreciation for them. This is so difficult. <laughs> this is so difficult. This is really difficult. But here's the amazing part. If you actually can go, and what we do, and part of the SOS is to stop, oxygenate into your heart, and try to feel some gratitude or appreciation for that person, even though you've got a gripe, you actually move to a different level because what you're doing, if you think about this, all you're really doing is you're doing that so you can increase your work in memory. That's all you're doing if you think about it. You know, just straight in terms of selfish, this is for me. If you just did it for that reason, it means that you can sit there and increase your working memory. You see, the problem is nobody is taught how to, breathing is not enough. It's literally not enough. You try to breathe, but you still get upset, don't you? Right? Think about it. If everyone says stop and breathe. Great. It's not enough. It's really not enough. You have to do something. That's why you need to stop, breathe, get out of there, 
and go in to do some gratitude. I'm going to actually teach you. We're going to do some closed eye kind of teaching around what we teach the Olympic athletes, CEOs, you name it. A really powerful technique, which is to stop, which is to oxygenate into the heart space, to feel some gratitude and appreciation. Because once we do that, we actually now have an opportunity to actually seek information. Because in the end, you know and I know, I was not there for my brother because I did not seek information. I had some certainty about what was going on as opposed to curiosity. It's when we need to ask questions. Stop, oxygenate, strengthen the heart feelings. I mean, this is, you probably never heard this before. And then seek information. In the end, it's all about a choice. A choice to have a courageous conversation or not. You see, because it's almost like we have, look at the diagram, it's like we have what we feel, which is the diagram you just saw, and then we have what we express. And we have an opportunity to actually express our truth or to swallow. We confuse, and this is how I was with my brother, we confuse impact, how it impacts us, for intention. Write that in. We confuse impact for intention. So we think that's what they meant, but they really didn't mean it. You know, when we coach people to have courageous conversations, you can't believe they come back and they go, they weren't thinking that at all. Unbelievable. I don't want that to happen to you. We swallow three basic things. We swallow our hurt. We swallow our needs. And we swallow our song. Our song. What's our song? Our song is that thing inside of us that needs to get out. It's our calling. It's our gift from God. It's what we need to get at to really serve ourselves and the world. Unfortunately, we don't. We swallow. Fear stops us, and we never take that next step. Really, by being in the room, you guys are already there. But don't stop. I saw at Atlanta, at the Olympics, I saw this sign that said, if you think you're ripe, you've begun to rot. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's pretty neat. So... I want to talk about this for a minute. We either have the opportunity for a breakthrough or breakdown, because this work comes from the depression literature. What happens? We swallow our truth. You know what happens? We have a circle that goes all the way back around to what we feel. So now we have this anger in us. It doesn't have to happen that way. So here's what happens. Tomorrow, somebody says something that upsets you. Stop in that moment. Just don't say anything. Breathe into your heart. And in the moment, if you feel like you have some working memory, seek information. You know, ask. Be curious. Geez, you know, what did you mean by that? Or, I'm kind of hurt by what you said. Can, can, you, can we talk about it? If you can't, then just stop and oxygenate and either tell them, you know, I, I, need, to, I need to stop for a minute. And then we need to go to the, the strength and heart. And I want to talk about that right now. You know, at work, if I have something that gets under my skin that I need to talk to someone about, I literally stop and think of all of the great qualities that that person has. There are so many great qualities that people have. If we can, you know, focus there, now we can go in and be a bit more measured, but still, still speak our truth. There's three questions that I think define success for me. 
It's not external. It's not what other people think or say or do. It's what we decide. When you hit a setback, I want you to answer these three questions. You hit a setback, you ask yourself, did I give it my all? Did I give it my all? Did I honor myself? Did I go out there and give it 102%? Did I give it my all? That's the first question. The second question is, if it didn't work out, if it didn't work out, did I learn something and change my game? If it didn't work out, did I learn something and change my game? You know, if you're an Olympic athlete, it's just all about getting feedback, getting better, getting, having, getting feedback, getting better. It's no different for any of us. If it didn't work out, did I learn something and change my game? And finally, you know they, what they say about the uh, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? But number three, did I quit? Did I quit? Three questions. Did I give it my all? If it didn't work out, did I learn something and change my game? And did I quit? And here's the deal. If you don't quit, if you're still in the game, if you're not with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat, wow, what a life worth living, living boldly. You know what my New Year's resolution or wish was? We shared it with a little group over New Year's, is to live boldly this year, to live boldly. I started a men's group where we talk about our feelings. God, is it ever great. You, you leave, you feel like 100 pounds lighter. It's a great weight loss uh, program. Seriously, it's amazing. The choice is yours, though. And nobody can do this for you. So emotional intelligence is resilience in the face of setback. Resilience in the face of setback. Like Viktor Frankl, Winston Churchill, Henry Ford, all of these people. Nelson Mandela, resilience in the face of setback. Joe Jaworski said, before you can lead others, before you can help others, you have to discover yourself. If you want a creative explosion to take place, if you want the kind of performance that leads to truly exceptional results, you have to be willing to embark on a journey that leads to an alignment between an individual's personal values and aspirations and the values and aspirations of the company. Casey is doing that. Are you doing that? It's your choice. Has anybody been to China here? China. Have you ever heard the story of the bamboo in China? It's a great story. Have you heard that? Have people heard that? What a great story. For those who haven't, I've been to China a few times. I heard this story. I didn't quite know if it was right. Checked it out. It's true. Parts of China, they plant a bamboo bulb. And they put this bamboo bulb in the, grow, in the ground. For four years, there is no growth above the soil. But what is happening? Roots, infrastructure, right? In the fifth year, that bamboo bulb will grow in a six-week period to 80 feet tall. You can almost probably watch it grow. I didn't see it, but you could probably watch it grow. What does that tell us? To me, it's a metaphor. It's a true story, but it's a metaphor about our work that we're doing. This will take time. It will take time, right? You have to have faith in what you're doing. Anything takes time. This business takes time. So does growing emotional intelligence. But the fruit goes to those people who do not give up. And get this, when that bamboo is fully mature, it's stronger than steel. It's 10 cell strength. It's stronger than steel. I checked it out. 
And number two, so it's very strong. Number two, it's very resilient. At Hiroshima, ground zero, the closest living life form still alive was bamboo. So it's strong. It can speak its truth. It can be strong in the face of objection. And it's also very resilient. Because life is not easy. Sometimes we need to surf the waves. I want to finish with this beautiful quote. I know you probably have heard it, but I want you to think of this when things get tough. And as Charles Swindle said, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures and successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to it. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. God bless.